0: Thank you for accepting our invitation. It's
1: a pleasure. Thank you very, very much, Cedric. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for organizing this. Uh, I, I think we're all talking about ecosystems, uh, but be, be, be behind it, it's a lot of people such as yourself who are tirelessly contributing and uh, contributing in building it. So thank you for taking the time. I know you're super busy with work as well, you and Mazen. So thanks for taking the time to uh, maintain
0: and grow the startup grind community here in Montreal. (laughs) Thank you, Elias. Thank you, Elias. So let's start quickly with your background, if you can. Tell us a bit about your journey that led you uh, from Morocco to Montreal and your early start here in the city.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, first, sorry for the background, but, uh, you know, COVID situation, we do what we can. And I don't have such a crispy background as yourself. Uh, So, uh, yeah. So my name is Elias. I'm... Born and raised in Morocco until uh, for uh, for for my studies, I actually ke- went to France for a little uh, glimpse uh, before uh, coming to Montreal. I was uh, I was really inspired by uh, the multicultural aspect of uh, Montreal itself, as well as uh, the power of the educational system here. The fact that Montreal was such a large university uh, city, I think the second in North America or something like that, as well as the the, the innovative. Uh, research centers, et cetera, that were uh, here. Um, Really cool for the government to support uh, research, innovation, uh, as well as entrepreneurship. And I was always like a techie at heart, you know, like you, I I liked programming uh, when I was like uh, 14, 15, when like, uh, you know, it wasn't super sexy at that time, but uh, still uh, I love technology. I built my first websites uh, as well as built platform actually to bring uh, communities Uh, on PHP 3 back in the days before you had like a bunch of frameworks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, How I I joined actually uh, the tech ecosystem here in Montreal was kind of like almost by chance. Uh, I always liked helping people in a way, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but uh, we launched uh, Action Bénévol Communautaire a nonprofit, joined ISF, which is a large nonprofit as well. And with time, I really enjoyed and seeing like bringing people together, Creating value to the ecosystem where they are. And I really enjoyed it both. Uh, you know, when, when, when you give, you get more than what you expect. That's something that I truly believe. Um, and I realized with time that actually the tech aspect came back biting me. Uh, and I started realizing that, for example, university, you don't have career fairs for entrepreneurs at that time. Uh, you had for a large organization, and I have nothing against. EY, PwC, Deloitte, and all the IBMs of this world, great. But they have a budget. They come in universities and they hire people there. They, they, they have the means to have like career fairs there, etc. And it was always felt like bad for the startups uh, or the entrepreneurs who also needed talent. And I'm talking about a decade ago, 2008, 2007, mm-hmm. more actually than a decade. <laughs> but jokes aside, and I, really, I felt bad for that. So I kind of like tried to bring startups within my university. And it was, a, it was a hard thing. It was a, it was a really a chemin de croix, as we say here in, uh, in, in French. Um, so I kind of like fought at that time. And I realized that uh, for large organizations, it was about $1,000 to spend there two days. For smaller ones, there was nothing. So I fought to have it for about $100 at that time for a startup. And realizing with time that a startup or an entrepreneur wanted commercialization, wanted to have their word out, uh needed like beta testers, people to use their products, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I stumbled up upon a meetup, uh Montreal New Tech at that time. Uh that was a little meetup held in uh, in bars, et cetera. And I love the vibe of the community, but I wanted to do more. And I believe that um you know my my kind of like little drive and energy could contribute. So I joined as a volunteer and I haven't left since then and uh, we we grew, we we've done a, a bunch of things. Uh, throughout, and I'm really grateful for
0: this opportunity and continuing in it. So, so how did that happen? So you, you got involved in 2011, I think, in Montreal New Tech? Yeah, exactly. You just, You just reached out with, to that? Like you just, how, how did that happen? Oh, this is one of the beauty of, uh, of
1: such an ecosystem. It's very welcoming. Like, people are there to actually get shit done. Uh, they're not like the, the BS with the cravat and the cocktail. Now we're changing a bit. We can talk about that afterwards. Um, But basically, like, people needed help, uh, and I wanted to contribute, I wanted to give a hand, so I joined, it was uh, Harry uh, and uh, a bunch of other people organizing this, and like carrying beers, going to the bars, uh, and then like going to places, uh, one of the first places where we went was Soundtech, an incubator here in Montreal, then District 3 and the others uh, that were launching along the ways, and bringing really the communities, and I think like, what was really interesting at that time was really to bring this kind of like voice as well as really at the crossroad of both tech as well as the human aspect of being able to build trust uh, among each other. And um, and from there, like we, we did a bunch of hackathons, career fairs for startups, even when universities weren't super uh, collaborating. We rented the space and we did our own career fair without the universities supporting us at that time. Uh, a bunch of demo days. I think like the core of Montreal New Tech was and still will be. Showcasing technology, showcasing innovation, etc., And the demo nights of Montreal New Tech became like a kind of like a famous thing. Um, we we realized that like uh, the organization or like the ecosystem needed information. So that was more like 2012, 2013. So we started with the newsletter, the calendar that became kind of like the big thing where everybody just like dropped by and get to know what's happening, basically, like the information aspect. Um, then 2012, 2013, um, well, actually 2011 was uh, also the fundraising for Natsman House. So we had, uh, uh, it was uh, led by also like Osmo Foundation, Harry and others. And we raised 100K on Indiegogo at that time. It wasn't uh, an easy feat. Uh, and as, uh, you know, Founder Fuel started, accelerators. kind of like Montreal became a bit more bubbly in a way. And thanks for the Osmo Foundation for that, actually. Uh, Alan and uh, John Stokes and uh, Sidon Khan and a whole bunch of others. Sorry if I didn't name uh, all of them. Um, and then we realized that like, incubators were starting and we wanted to contribute to that as well. We collaborated with the first ones, had tip to a district three that really led the kind of like incubator movement with, uh, with an appetite to break silos. So it wasn't just dedicated to the university students of District of Concordia, but to the others. And it kind of like set things into motion into breaking silos. And I think one of the strengths of Montreal New Tech and the kind of like, culture that I was able to instill and maintain was really to keep one forward thinking around technology, really being helpful and giving first kind of like attitude without necessarily expecting stuff, but knowing that you'll get something in return. But third also was really about reaching out, breaking silos, forcing sometimes collaboration, but always with a smile. And that led us
0: to some pretty good successes uh, throughout time. Yeah, well, I remember when uh, the first Montreal New Tech event I attended was in... uh was in 2015, and I think you had back then State 22 which was called Zillio, I think back then. Uh, there was also Epanel, et cetera. So it was really the, the first event that I attended with the startup ecosystem. And back then, your events were a bit more like a, some kind of a demo day where startups would, would come, talk about themselves, and then you'd have the audience asking them questions, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think around three years ago, maybe, you guys pivoted a bit in your events, in the way you're doing things. Uh, to focus more on open innovation? How how did that, the, the word that we love using in the startup ecosystem, pivot? How did that pivot happen uh, internally at Montreal New Tech? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I'm lucky to be able to have
1: purpose in my life, or at least, like, be able to to do what I like and be able to, to kind of, like, move forward in it. And I think... A, the the moment the pivot happened was like, as we saw the ecosystem growing, we saw the multiplicity of players. And I'm always thinking about like, how can we bring value? How can we truly bring value? Let's move away from just the show and let's move away from just like being there to kind of like uh, stay put in our successes because we were and we still are uh, in a certain way uh, successful into like being part of the ecosystem, contributing to its buildup. But we realized that, like, there was some things lacking. And I love the example of the 2015 example. Because um, at that time, like, I, without diving into too much detail, like, I'm not sure, like, everybody would be comfortable uh, in that part. But, like, one of the founders of a startup came and he literally just said, I had one month run away. I'm going to close my business. Uh, you invited me two months ago. It was going okay. But now it's shit show. And I'm going to close my business. And And I realized that, like, Many startup founders are product-driven. They want to contribute to society. They want to bring value, but they want to build stuff. They don't necessarily have the capacity to build uh, businesses or to sell or to present. And they're lacking a bunch of things there. And I realized that maybe if I contribute and I actually joined and helped that startup pivot itself and move them from a B2C model to a B2B2B model. And from there, it actually went pretty well and it's still uh, going fairly well today. And I realized that like that need to have someone or to have an organization that supports from the early stage, the right collaboration between other organizations that can be not only clients, but also partners uh, is becoming more important than ever. So you can come and market and sell your things. But what if from the get go, you were able to get a partner to support you and also be a buyer? And what was really interesting there, it was... The ability for us in a way to create this space in time and physically, where we were able to bring multiple stakeholders and create trust and relationships and uh, engagements between them. And that's, and actually, thanks to you and like in your previous jobs as well, where we realized like VCs were there, corporations were asking questions of like, how can we work with those startups? Like, what's going on there? They are innovative. We are uh, slow, etc. They're agile. But like, it was almost like two, two worlds speaking different languages. And we realized that we created that space for collisions to happen in a way. And that's where kind of like that realization happened. The second part was also like, we suck. We really suck at commercializing IP. We're great at developing IP. We're great at funding research, but we still suck at commercializing it. So what if we could help? instill the entrepreneurship mindset into researchers. And I had a few fights sometimes with the leading researchers, I'm not going to name them, where we were asking them to push a bit further to help us contribute into this commercialization. The other one was also like a business moment that I realized that, you know, large organizations are built to maintain trust. They have trust, they're built to maintain it. Startups don't have trust and want to get it. But large organizations, are meant to keep that trust with their clients, their partners, etc. And there is the paradox between the action and being frozen into that kind of like, oh, we have to maintain the statu quo because we want to keep that trust. Because change creates the risk of losing that trust. So really the frozen action paradox of embracing change as well as maintaining trust became more apparent than ever. And finally, there is a kind of like personalization on my end was like, I realized that I was a bit weird as an individual, and I always thought that it was a flaw to to, to lack focus, to like to bring multiple people together, to uh, to like multiple projects, etc. And I realized that it's actually okay and potentially also like a, a, an actual strength to be able to kind of like be multimodal, speak to different people, and actually be able to understand them all from a developer to a business person to a CEO. And I
0: tried uh, working on that strength, and uh, that's where the Kind of like pivots happened. And what kind of benefits did you see for those startups? So you're talking about how you saw that the evolution of the ecosystem meant that, okay, there's enough places where startups can pitch, can promote themselves, but now let's concentrate on open innovation. What has been the benefits that you've seen since you guys have pivoted?
1: So in, in a clear way, uh, the main benefit for a startup when you talk about open innovation are threefold. One, the, if, if you see it, like it, it's all about equilibrium. Like if you want to build a meaningful relationship, yes, you have to be generous, but you have to create a balance between both. So if you take like a large organization and a startup, what we realized with, the, with, with time, the benefits are very clear, as long as expectations are at the, the right level. And we can talk about expectations uh, later. But the benefit directly for a startup is one, they are able to build trust from the get-go. So working with large organization, that is established, that has trust, this trust can be transferred to the other. And we have tangible examples, uh, with that, for example, with Data Performers, uh, a leading AI startup today that when their first client, or their first Canadian client, because they had one client in the US before Canada, which is uh, the, yeah, and another paradox that we can talk about, their first client, uh, a leading financial institution, Desjardins, not to name it, uh, became their first, the, the day that Desjardins became their first client, they transferred that trust to them. It's like a resume. You know, when you have uh, Desjardins on your startup resume from the get-go and you still almost don't have a product and have the technology but not the product, that's a great win. And you can take that to get next clients. So one, you build trust faster. Second, subject matter expertise. So through a, a large organization, you can get People, experts, subject matter experts, without having to have them on the payroll. And actually, you're being paid by the large organization to host those experts on your uh, on your board or on your on your team, which is a, a fantastic thing if you think about it. And third, it's also money. Like obviously, um, uh, having uh, a smaller amount of money is uh, 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 an amount of money at the beginning is kind of like a, uh, l'argent c'est nerf de la gas So it's, it's a key yeah. aspect. So one, trust on your CV second, subject matter experts without the payroll, and third, money. That's for the startup. But as I said, it's all about balance, and you have to design it so that it's successful, by, it's successful by design. So on the company part, and that's where we kind of like come as well to help, is for the company, they get the agility without the risk. So they have a partner, uh, a, a startup that has a forward-thinking technology, uh, has more embrace for risk, as well as the agility for it, a large organization, as I just said, an organization is, a large organization in general have like a risk management antibodies in a way. So you outsource that risk in a way. Second, on a monetary part, sorry, not everybody can pay large amounts of money to a a beautiful, amazing, awesome consulting firm uh, to, to do some tests and embrace failure. But at the same time, nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. So finding that balance where you find the amount of money that the startup is hungry for and they really would take it, not necessarily a consulting firm, they have the agility, not necessarily a large one, et cetera, et cetera, and they embrace that. So on the monetary part, it's less money than you would expect. And third, it's also about transfer of knowledge. So you actually can co-create that product. You can co-create a product from the get-go with the startup. That is the key element because if you think about it, and we can dive deeper into that. But if you think about it, a large uh, a startup that is established, that has a product already established, has to crystallize that product and, and scale and sell it to as many people as they can or as many corporations as they can. But the more nimble startup that has a great team, but not necessarily already a product, well, it's like bread. It's like a dough. You can still like arrange it in such a way that it actually answers your need and not having to adapt yourself to the product
0: at hand. And was that was that one of the main challenges you would say that these startups uh, have? So you mentioned money, of course, it helps. But what other challenges you guys uh, these startups were facing? That that's a great question. I think
1: one of the first challenge, and this is like a key aspect, is like opening the door. It sucks. I would love that we would teach our startups better ways to do B two B sales or like uh, relationship uh, sales. But opening the door is really hard. And that's where uh, having a a partner uh, opening the door for them, having someone who already the large organization trusts to open that door for them is great. Second, and this is something that I will tell any entrepreneur in the room, stop bullshitting people, please. That's actually one of the challenges. And I'll tell you why. So many times we brought a startup that was overselling and under-delivering. That's not how it works. So imagine I open the door for you. i let you in, I invite you in, you have a dinner, and then you start bullshitting the person. That doesn't work. And I really believe that having kind of like this equilibrium of trust is really key. And that was one of the challenges. I would say the third one is really about uh, on the large large organization side, it's about uh, designing success or what I call like building a project with manufactured success from the get-go. And what I mean by that is again, nobody gets fired for hiring idea. So for a manager, like put yourself in a manager's shoe. So let's say, hey, Cedric, you're the manager of a large organization. My name is Elias. I bring you a startup, you talk with them. They're like, yeah, I would love to, but dude, like I'm working and like I need to convince my boss to convince the others. Like what's this person? So one of the challenges really finding the first successes to make sure that you look good, that the manager look, looks good in front of their bosses, so that instead of working with a small budget, for example, what you realize that most of the time for a small pilot project is between $25,000 and $75,000, then you get the first success there, and then you can get the ball rolling. And that's an amazing way to actually circumvent this, uh, this famous quote about uh, IBM. Not that we don't like them, we love IBM
0: as well, but uh, you know what I mean. So you mentioned it a few times now, uh, the Desjardins brand comes up, obviously you work for them. They're heavily involved in the startup ecosystem for, it's been a few years now. Uh, they have different initiatives like the Desjardins Lab, Cooperaton, the Startup in Residence also program thats uh, that you've mentioned that some of the startups have benefited from. Uh, it's great to see, honestly, uh, from the outside, a big player like that uh, get involved in the startup scene and, you know, put skin in the game, like they say, Right. But on Desjardins' side, what has been the benefit so far? So it's been a few years that they're having all these initiatives. What are the benefits that you're seeing? What could attract other big uh, companies, enterprises to commit also the way Desjardins has been committing? Sure. So if I may,
1: before like diving into the benefits, uh, I would just like, and I, I don't mean it as like uh, just being nice to Desjardins, but highlighting a unique aspect. And I think that is one of the key values of our ecosystem as well. And that's one of the reasons why I joined Desjardins in and, uh, beginning in 2016. Uh, we had the opportunity to work at Montreal New Tech and Desjardins on the hackathon actually. when they, uh, I had the opportunity to work with Desjardins before on an innovation pipeline back in 2012, 2013, okay. relationships there. And in 2015, they called me back to give a hand on the hackathon and we started working there uh, as well. I was an entrepreneur at that time going through a rough patch with, uh, with the partner there. So I gave them a hand a bit. And I realized that, like, and I, I want to, to highlight that aspect before uh, moving forward, because it's important. Like, I think culture and values are key for uh, open innovation and actually nurturing both the ecosystem and your organization as well. So again, like, it's a give-first attitude without necessarily expecting from the get-go. Yeah. That will be way more uh, back at the end. So it's a cooperative. And I say it in a in a in a very honest way. Uh, the values of a cooperative or a, a credit union uh, of 120 years have at their core the values of open innovation that is really meaningful, sustainable, and multi uh, multi beneficial. Uh, and that's how I kind of like came in uh, when from the get go they were like, you know what, like we want to launch this lab. Uh, we're not sure exactly how. Well, we're going to do it. We know we have events. I think that you are pretty good at doing that kind of stuff. Can you help us out? I started with three days a week, um, and that, the reason why I'm highlighting this again because in case there is any large organization listening to us today, we are going to talk about the benefits. We are going to talk about where we are. But four years ago, the expectations were fairly high, f- fairly low. Sorry, and what I always say to my team: happiness is the difference between. Expectations and results, and that allowed us to go for a year or a year and a half without necessarily having like super high expectations. Really creating that time and space where not only it was okay to try, but it was also okay to fail. And you need that from the get-go to be able to benefit uh, down the road. So that's one. Second, uh, it's the easy sorry its the realization that complexity is growing, world challenges are growing, and incremental innovation is obsolete. And I think for a large organization to truly, even like a large one as Desjardins that has 50,000 employees uh, and like we are built as an organization to be incremental in our actions, again, to maintain trust with our uh, end users. Because obviously like a big bank or a big financial institution, what is their biggest asset? It's not the money they have in their offices or whatever. It's the trust they have with their users. The biggest asset of a large organization is the trust. But at the same time, you have this paradox of like in- incremental innovation is obsolete because the challenges of our society, our world that we're facing are growing and more complex as the they go. So you need to create that time and space where uh, trying, failing, iterating, learning, a bit like in the startup mentality is more important than ever. And we all realize that and that's where it was an echo with our organization. We all realized that like, we're not going to fight climate change with a nap. We're not going to fight the, 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 larger challenge, the largest challenges uh, with just this kind of like mindset of, like, yeah, just digital stuff. There is, we need space for disruption. And creating that bubble where failure can happen was a key aspect. And again, I maintain that for our corporate uh, listeners or watchers here. The expectation at that moment were fairly low. And my role within it was not only to, to well, my role, our team were, were role, because it, I would be very arrogant to say my role alone, but it, it was a great trust from our leader as well, Federico Pueblo, uh, who kind of like created that space where he was the the Gilet the, Parbal. How do you say that in English? Um, bulletproof, vest. bulletproof vest. So he was a kind of like bulletproof vest for our little bubble where we were trying stuff so that the antibodies of the organization weren't going through us. Because of course, we needed that space again to try and fail and iterate on it. So uh, that aspect, plus adding like a small uh, ability to iterate on it and, and grow new initiatives allowed us to launch few stuff. So allow me to talk about few successes if you want, yes. as you just- and, well, few successes, it's an ongoing thing. You know, it's like a recipe. I love cooking. So, so you know, you open your fridge, you check what ingredients you have, and from there you build something, right? So, it's like a recipe. Nothing is perfect yet. The date will be perfect. We'll write a book or something like that. And even then, it's, uh, perfection is the horizon. So, it's fine. So, to go back to, to the point from the get go, and I used the example of data performance earlier, but imagine, and this is a concrete example for the people. Imagine you're a large organization, you hear about AI, you hear about data sciences, and obviously, like one of the great uh, assets, there are also uh, all the, the, the data you can leverage, develop algorithms around it, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking for a solution. We went to the large organizations, and obviously, like a consultant or, or whatnot, and we're working very well with consultants. We have great partners there, and we're really building amazing infrastructure within. But one of the challenges is when you're trying something. So at that time, we were looking at startups and most startups had uh, already crystallized products. So it's a product, they want to scale it. Obviously, that's the role of a startup. So when you want to scale, you don't want those kind of like custom requests. And at the same time, if you want to try and fail and et cetera, you cannot go to a large organization and be like, hey, I have this small budget to try and fail because that's everything I can do. So from the get-go, we scouted for the right team and the team before the product that had a product around agri- agriculture, data performers, amazing team, fantastic uh, mindset, fantastic values, etc., uh, a bunch of great scientists as well, and we talked about how can we actually transform a product that can um, work in agriculture into anticipating projection behavior, etc., and apply into uh, humans and, and customers, etc. Yeah. And we're able to pivot that, and that's what I call Man, um, success, manufacturing success. It was a small success, and it allowed us to launch the startup in residence program. Because from that first success, people in the higher ups and uh, reading the media and, and and interacting with the internally with the startup itself, they were like, "Whoa, that's work. That works."
0: Our first test was a success, and that's what allowed us to try new. But do you feel on- do you feel it's slugged then? Because we all know open innovation involves failures. Yeah. So it's, it's part of the game, right? It's part of yeah. incremental, it's part of growing, it's part of the collaboration part. There's a risk of failure. Do you feel like if the first test was not a success or you don't want to think about it, but if it wasn't yeah. a success, do you think things would have been different? 100% Cedric, 100%. And I think that's
1: where like a little maturity in your behavior, depending on who you're talking to and designing success from the get go. Small success, you don't need like a huge one. My goal. Our goal wasn't like to build the biggest transformative, innovative—you name it, any buzzword you want to put in—from the get-go. But I, we knew deep inside, and I don't want to go back to the 2012-2013 experiment. But truth being said, it's about the maturity of the organization to allow that time and space for failure potentially. And we had few failures, but it was like small things that were still inside our bubble. And that's where like having a great boss. Who is this kind of like bulletproof vest? Who is this kind of like person who's going to go to the bat for you, for your team, go to their management and be like, hey, it's part of the game, and convince their higher-up that it's fine, but at the same time creating a space that it will not uh, spill over the core businesses of the, the larger organization. That was key. But you're absolutely right. If, if we tried a huge project and failed, that would be done for the lab at that time. And that's why we kind of like design it. And I think anyone who wants to be this intermediary, this this glue between those two worlds has to have the maturity to design things, to have small successes so that you get the ball rolling. Otherwise it's naive. And I think this naivety is also one of why so many startups have a hard time getting large organization. And I think that's why today we talk about open innovation more than in 2013 when I was trying to promote it, it's because we're growing and we're losing this kind of like naivety to just be like, hey, startups are going to change the world. Of course they can. But doing it in a partnership with a large organization that shared similar values is such a great lever
0: to change actually the world. And you feel like you've, and I don't want to grow your ego here, but do you feel like you, you guys have had a, a significant input? Because I did my, my master's thesis was also on open innovation ecosystems related to uh, startups that are looking to uh, expand and get connected. And most of the time, entrepreneurs don't have time necessarily to look at the big picture of all the players, you know, whether it's co uh, competition, co-design, et cetera, of products, of services. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: I think, I think we, I I think from, like, are you talking about me as Elias or me as Desjardins or me as, uh, as, as Montreal New Tech? However way you want it. What do you think in general about that? I think entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs do have to focus on their product. I think amazing entrepreneurs have this kind of like multi-model aspect where they can both focus on product and understand better their markets etc and that's why like we see so many great entrepreneurs actually who are usually like not to drop out from university as like the Zuckerberg of this world but to drop out of, uh, of a large business or a large organization because they are in this large organization they realize that there is a flaw they realize that like the long grenage, or like It's built to like maintain the statu quo in a way or like incremental things. And they want to actually be disruptive. They try within the organization, they fail, and they're like, you know what, fuck that, I'm out. So we see that as well. What I believe in and what I think I humbly contributed a bit is to be able to grab those people. And I think we're not there yet, by the way. I think this is our next frontier. But it's to grab those entrepreneurial mindset. It's to grab those people within large organizations who have this expertise, who have the entrepreneurship mindset, the great values and the, the hustle that they want to actually work hard and get shit done and bring them closer to a kind of like entrepreneurial endeavor to be able to dream big, build a team and develop that. But in that, I do believe that we need help. We need people who can take them by hand, connect them with the ecosystem, help them navigate that ecosystem. And the fun part, you know, we talk about the solitude in French. I'm sorry to to drop some French here and there, but you know, we are from Montreal. in Montreal. Yeah, Montreal. But two solitude. It's on one hand, you have like even an entrepreneur within a large organization who's completely oblivious to what's happening in their ecosystem system. Even if they go, they go to a saint cassette or like having a drink, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they are curious. They read a bit, but they still need like to embrace and be uh, immersed in the ecosystem. On the other hand, you have like those large, large Entrepreneurs or startups, etc., who may know more about the ecosystem but are completely oblivious to the rest. So I think, like even like yourself with Startup Grind, Montreal New Tech, the Coopératon, and I would love to talk a bit about, uh, about it. We create this time and space where we bring those different type of people to get to know each other, to break that kind of like solitude, and to build trust and just engage and build hopefully relationship so that down the road they can actually build something together because they don't know it, or maybe they don't know it, but they should, but they know they need each other to be able to actually change the world.
0: Perfect. Now we're talking a bit more about startups. We've talked, it's been over 10 years that you're involved in the ecosystem, talking with startups, talking with entrepreneurs. What are the, the general advi- advices that you give to, you find yourself, you're giving a lot to entrepreneurs. It's, it's the same thing over and over again. They, so, so some of the advices that keep on coming back
1: I uh, I will say a, a simple one: stop bullshitting. We are not in the naive world anymore. And I know, like it may be a, a, a bit rough. And I love entrepreneurs. I think, like you know me, how much I love entrepreneurs and startups. But please, you know, under un, 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 uh, undersell and 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 over deliver. Uh, I've seen it, and unfortunately, sometimes it happens again and again. That, that, I think, is a, is a key aspect. The second one is really surround yourself with be- people who are better than yourself and complementary to your skill set. Again and again, I still see entrepreneurs who unfortunately uh, think they can either do it on their own or think that they can surround themselves with the like-minded people and get shit done. Uh, you do it at, at a small scale, but I think we need the maturity to actually look for people different than yourself Uh, We're talking about diversity and inclusion as well, but it's key to have like these kind of like different uh, skill sets. Third is truly know your market or know your partners. Don't have the arrogance of knowing what's going on out there. Unless you, as I said earlier, you've been working in a large organization or something like that, and you, you truly understand the problem. We still see entrepreneurs who are trying to tackle imaginary problems. And fourth, I would say, please, like the challenges ahead are so big. Try to tackle one of those challenges. We don't need, like, the next Uber for toilet paper because I I'm, I, I need one now or or any other uh, delivery or whatever up there. Those are, like, kind of, like, uh, general advices. And I really believe, especially on the tackling large problems, I think the large problems that are ahead of us are so huge that they. whenever you think of a large problem, it means also a large business opportunity. Dream big. And I know it sounds like... Uh, Uh, a very uh, common uh, sentence to say, but truly, like the next 10 years, we're going to see climate change or climate crisis becoming more uh, prevalent than ever. If you are able to tackle such a problem or such a challenge, trust me, you'll be a billionaire. And those large challenges need to be tackled. We have an amazing opportunity today where large organizations are also understanding more and more that they need to collaborate with startups. It wasn't the case just like 10 years ago or even just five years ago. And I do believe that in the next three to five years, we're saying all organizations are going to have a lab. All organizations are going to do one way or the other something called open innovation or, uh, or, or, uh, uh, or a variance of it. So you have those people, or a large organization, who want to embrace you. So take the time to get to know them. Take the time to tackle those large challenges. I think those aspects are going to be key. Um, and of course, like anything, and you would bring any incubator accelerator here, they would talk about like validate from the get-go, work with a partner from the get-go to validate before like putting your heart and sweat in it. Uh, be passionate about true problems that are actually solving something and that's like imaginary ones. Um, and, and things like that, I think this is I- important. Um, and if, if I may, like for me, diversity and inclusion is so key. And I think it has like a huge value added And even when we do something like Cooperaton, that in the middle of uh, COVID and the crisis and everything, we're able to virtualize everything and still keep the human touch. We are very proud that we we had uh, among the 1,500 participants, uh, 40% of women, for example. And we work very hard to get that. We are proactive about it. And we can talk about that further if you want, but it's truly requiring proactivity. Uh, consciousness about it and true actions and leaving space for that as well to happen because it's stupid if you think about it by default skipping on half of the population or like doing little efforts for that because a lot of innovation is happening there a lot of innovation happens when you bring different people who think differently you know the famous think different dude
0: you have to do it consciously thank you uh, everyone, we've opened up the Q and A section in the chat. So if you go in the chat section, there's a tab Q and A. If you want to start writing down your questions, <clears throat> Elias. Before we go back into uh, a different, uh, a bit of a different subject, I just I want to approach you and say, well, one of the big challenges that I see also with startups is they don't know how to talk with large organizations. They don't know how to try to get that first client, and it's normal. You've talked about it. I've worked with EY also. It's, it's tough, it's tough to sell for a big company because the big company also sees you as a big liability, as a big risk. What are your advices when an entrepreneur approaches you and wants advice on how to approach these bigger companies? Uh, you know, uh, speaking
1: of advice, um, you know, ask for advice, you'll get money and ask for money, you'll get advice. So my first advice is don't ask for money. My first advice is don't go there to sell something. And I know it sounds uh, simple or like easier said than done, but go there and ask for advice, create a rapport, create a relationship, be where the people you want to talk to are. I know it's harder during COVID, but actually it's easier. And I've seen, and I've met so many entrepreneurs throughout the last year that tell me, oh, it's so hard to network, dude, like COVID. I'm like, no, you're crazy, it's quite the opposite. You can stay in your room, open a browser, and go around the world, network with people. You can, even on the Montreal New Tech side, or like Cooperaton side, we did the largest Cooperaton ever. We did the largest uh, creative collisions with the Montreal New Tech from coast to coast to coast. The reason why is because we're virtual. So for any entrepreneur out there, my piece of advice is know your industry, know the players you want to talk to, and build a rapport with them. Go to the conferences where they are. Now, I, I just took like the, the, the Montreal New Tech calendar. There is probably like 40 events a week. Uh, even right now, there is one on tech There is huge things on tech going on. If you're thinking about that, like the Canadian Space Agency is doing things. Prompt is doing things. Groups are... There is so much going on just here in Canada. So that would be my second one. Is like Be where uh, your future clients or partners are. Third is surround yourself with... True advisors or like people who actually care about you and care about your future, and who can help you open that door. And uh, you know, it's 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 like dating. You know, this kind of relationship is really building a, a rapport with the larger organization is like dating. Sometimes having a wingman or a wingwoman can be very helpful to build that rapport uh, with the, the larger organization. So potentially going and knocking at your doors, that being like, hey, you seem to be you know a bunch of larger organizations. Can you help me talk to this person is there any advice you give me to be able to talk to this or that person i think that that would be key but i, I go back to one of the things that i said earlier as a, a third piece is don't bullshit don't oversell we are not in the naive world of like hey ai is going to solve everything or back in 2012 2014 where people are like hey startups are going to take over the large organizations and like uh change them more no now. It's more like we're going back to some simple roots of, like, generosity thinking, uh, really trying to grow the pie together. Uh, things, like, actually, that are very fundamental to humans, uh, how we're able, like, to work together as a community to survive. You know, uh, it's stupid to say, but, like, humanity has been able to survive because of communities, because throughout time we're able to come together and grow the pie together in the world. Mm-hmm. So those aspects are key. I know it's simple things, but... Uh, Going back to simplicity sometimes is the most important part. So again, don't sell, rather build a rapport. Find yourself a wingman or a wingwoman to do so. And truly think of a a true win-win relationship where you're growing the pie both for you and the others. And empathy is really key so that you understand actually who you're talking to and how can your actions uh, benefit them. How can you directly benefit the career of your uh, interlocutor that's that's the key thing. And lastly, start with small successes. Like the, the get your first project. Know their limits. So most of the organization, they have like a discretionary spending of twenty five to seventy five thousand dollars in a pilot or puck. So know that information and build yourself or your product in such a way that you can get that first success through the door and make the manager proud. And uh, then you'll get more business going on. So five
0: simple advices that I hope they are useful. So We'll jump right into a question that was just posted here. So for startups, what are the criterias for finding a suitable long-term corporate partner? I think you've mentioned that a bit in your speech now, but what are some red flags that you see about corporate partners there that should be a, a no-go for an entrepreneur startup? Um, so I, I will ask you a question
1: to, uh, to answer this question. Are you talking about the red flag for the corporate partner, as a corporate partner, or the red flag for the corporate partner uh, regarding the startup—is it for whom? Is it a red flag?
0: I, I think, and maybe that person can add to the question, but I think they mean this: the red, the start, the the red flags for the startups looking at the corporate partner. Okay.
1: Oops. Sorry, I didn't. Um, well, I I would say. Red flags for the startups. Okay, so I would say uh, from a red flag perspective, one, um, don't waste your time, especially, and I, I would say it's in a nice way, but don't waste your time if you don't feel you're strategically aligned with the interests of the manager you're talking to. So if I'm a startup and I'm going to talk to you, Cedric, and like you're in a certain line of business, and I see that my startup doesn't really answer yours, ne- your needs or doesn't really help you. Most people I know are very polite, especially here in Quebec. Everybody is polite. That's great. But for a startup, like it's either you move forward or you move backward. There is no statu quo. And every day is a hustle. Every day, it's either you grow or you shrink. There is no statu quo. For a large organization, statu quo is the statu quo. You, They're here for a while. So, if you're just like a dossier on a pile, don't go ahead. That's a huge red flag, actually. And I've seen so many startups that I talk to who tell me, oh, my God, I got this client. I'm like, okay, okay, well, hold on. What's your relationship with this client? Uh, oh, well, you know, we had like four or five meetings, etc." So I'm like, how are you advancing those meetings? How, what, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, there's this challenge or that challenge. And the relationship is not growing. The person doesn't help them navigate the... the, the 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 ecosystem of the large organization. That's a huge red flag. If I'm talking to someone and you're not helping me navigate the ecosystem, if the next meeting I'm not growing up the ladder, then you're wasting your time. And the best entrepreneurs that I know, actually, are the ones who turn down meetings with large organization where the right people are not around the table. Because then it's both a waste of your time and the time of the other. But you know what? The person working in the large organization, they have their paycheck. The person working in the large organization, they are being paid to take meetings, not you. You are paying to take that meeting, actually. like Every hour within a startup that you're not being productive and building your startup, you're losing money, whether you're funded or not. So that's, for me, the huge, huge, huge red flag. Politeness is a huge red flag. Getting shit done, sitting down with people who give you actionable items for the next step is a good one. Don't waste your time. I, I would say a second red flag. If you're talking, and I'm going to say it in all frankness, if you're talking to an innovation manager or a marketing manager or something like that without having a business line person at the same table, then you're just like, uh, you know, um, swatting your ego, his ego, or her ego, or whatever, and Mm -hmm. you're wasting time. This is a huge red flag as well, because some people are being paid to talk about innovation. I'm, in a certain extent, being paid to talk about innovation. I'm
0: but, being paid but it can be tricky for the startup, right? So they have that meeting with that company and, well, they can be saying, well, listen, it might be my way through the door and maybe at some point he'll be able Absolutely. to introduce me to his boss and his boss's boss. So, like, if you put yourself in the shoes of a startup, it's hard to to, to reject the meeting and to say Absolutely. no. Absolutely.
1: but Well, dude, you have to listen to, you have to learn to speak politely, right? You, you have to learn to... To to to, actually, that's a good uh, that's a good advice for startups. You have to really to talk to the to those people. Like the way I'm talking to you, and
0: I, I know we're online, but we're kind of like in. A,
1: in or you a level. have to
0: understand what he means when he say, when he says he, right? Because you're saying here, the the, the I, dynamics are a bit different.
1: Yeah, but I would tell you in a very polite way is that like you know you, you request a meeting, you request a coffee, or you request some time. You ask for advice. you, you ask simple advice are like. This is the problem I'm solving. This is how I I think I can add value to your organization. Who should I talk to, for example? Simple thing. And ideally, you talk to someone who's related to that line of business. You don't talk just to an innovation manager. That innovation manager is both the gatekeeper and the navigator. But many people forget that they need to be a navigator. My role... I consider my role to be a concierge service. And I'm very proud to say it. I've been a concierge of this beautiful ecosystem over the last decade. Just connecting the right people, helping them navigate, making them go faster, waste less time. Because time is of essence when you're a startup. So the person you're talking to, in a very polite way, being like, hey, who should I talk to? Can you introduce me to this person? Can we have a meeting together to better understand this problem? And if that person doesn't bring you, and it doesn't necessarily mean their boss, but the person from the business line who would benefit the most of your solution, then they are wasting their, your time. And actually, I bring a, a piece of advice regarding that because many startups as well tell me that they're like, "Oh, I'm connected with Deja," or "Hey, I'm connected with Sunlight," or oh, "I'm connected with uh, Microsoft." I'm like, "Well, who are you connected with?" Like Microsoft is like hundreds, if not. Uh, thousands of people. Desjardins is like dozens of thousands of people. Who are you connected with? And is this person aligned your interest with theirs? If not, can they introduce you to the right person? And people forget that. But like, it's not about how many uh, contacts you have within a large organization or how many meetings you have with someone. It's actually who's the right aligned person. And if you're connected in one door and you're not feeling that the responsiveness is there, it's fine. If you still want a Desjardins, then knock at another door. And the beauty of it is that I like can now, in the last five years, for example, within Desjardins, our open innovation readiness level, in a way, has increased. We're more ready to work with startups. Whether through Coopératon, we saw it this year, where actually Desjardins is sitting down with the potential startups, and we want to work with them. Our startup in residence program went from like just working with the startup and giving them kind of like concert service and few workshops, to now we have a $3 million uh, fund that we can invest up to $150,000 for the startup and the $25,000 grant to be able to work together potentially. So, our readiness level is increasing. We're more capable. We're starting a FinTech certificate. Well, we're, we're starting stuff. I'm not trying to talk about everything. But you like, don't want to release everything today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but like, what I mean is that like the organization is growing. So, having their open innovation readiness level in mind is actually a, a good part. And, This is actually a thought process that I've been working on, and we can talk about that in another discussion. Um, But this is important for the startup to know that open innovation readiness level of that large organization before opening the door, because there is a huge open innovation surface happening. And it is happening, because a lot of people are being paid to just talk, which paradoxically, literally what I'm doing right now. But I I like paradoxes. But they, they, they are beautiful. So you have to be careful in knowing who your interlocutor is. And who, you, who you were talking to, are they there just for the marketing aspect, which is fine. In the open innovation readiness level, it's fine having someone talking about open innovation just for a marketing purpose, for positioning, branding, whatever you call it. It's fine. It's okay. It's part of the process. And they are growing. They are going to grow through it. It's really fine. But if you want to actually get business done, then you have to aim for hire. If they are in marketing level, it's fine. Just go talk put yourself out there, get people to, to know you because the reality is managers, when they see your name in an article or they see your name in a newsletter within the organization, your name circles and it's great. They actually read their emails. It's fine.
0: Yes. Before circling back to the to the crowd where we have another question, you've mentioned it, 40% uh, women participants. I saw recently on LinkedIn, you were one of the speakers at a, the Mina uh, Mina woman in tech events. I saw it was all all the speakers were all women, and basically you were you were the intruder there. It was great to see, right? It was great to see that uh, speakers an event where speakers were majority uh, women. And right now we're talking a lot about diversity and inclusion. What are your thoughts on on the work that is being done and the work that still needs to be done in order to uh, to overcome that challenge?
1: Well, one. Uh it's true, it's funny to say that I was kind of like the intruder there or like uh, find, a, uh, find Charlie, whatever. Um, uh, but I would like like hats off to this kind of organization, like Persian Women in Tech, Women of Mina in Technology. Um, I had the chance, and like here in the Montreal chapter, uh, Sudha, Bahar, Sahar, etc. they're doing amazing work, I think, at creating a bubble where uh, it's a safe zone for women in technology to join uh there were Persian women in tech, now they're uh, women of Nina in tech. And they're increasing that bubble. That's great. We need more of those safe space bubbles. We had the opportunity also to launch Quite, uh, that is a great organization uh, running today, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So like it's both women but our other. So it's great to create those bubbles. Now that being said, and, and I talked about like the two solitudes when you talk about open innovation. Same goes for diversity and inclusion. It's not just about building bubbles. You bring women, and it's great. It's very important. But again, like it's kind of like a, a readiness level scale. Right? For the people who are familiar with technology readiness level, that's the same spirit. And just put like, uh, your brain into it, and you'll see how you can uh, contribute as well to increase our level on that diversity and inclusion level. It's great to have bubbles. It's very important. I'm amazed by the, those leaders who are contributing. But truth being said, I'm a privileged minority. I'm a man. Uh, from a certain affluent background, thank you to my mom and dad who worked their asses off so that I can be what I am today. I'm from Morocco, but I'm a, a pretty much a privileged person. And truth being said, we need more allies. We need an army of allies to rise and to raise the woman in technology and, and, and really raise those minorities to shatter the glass ceiling. We really need that. We need to all work hard and every man whether minority or uh, whatever, uh, majority or whatever you call it, needs to become an ally, to inspire someone else to become an ally, to attend those women in tech or whatever other event. We all need to sign the pledge. And at minimum, we really need to put at least like four or five items on this pledge and work it out. You know, like like going to the gym so that your body looks good or your brain looks good because it helps as well for the brain. We need to sign that pledge. We need to put on a list of five items, choose your list, ask a woman what kind of list you should put. Me personally, I have a simple five list items that I I, I try to abide by and I hope that people can abide by them. But it's also about inspiring other allies. But for me, a, a simple thing, and I can give you an example almost, and can have like a whole conversation on that. But for me, like one, enforcing proactive representation in leadership teams, as well as in conversation opportunities, whether it's a workshop, conferences, boot camp, whatnot. And I do that both on our team at Desjardins and at Montreal. Same goes for our conferences, same goes for our cooperatons, et cetera, et cetera, both at leadership, et cetera. Second, co-create a code of conduct. Find someone who understands what a code of conduct is and create a code of conduct for the work that you do. At Cooperaton, we have a clear code of conduct that we share with people and we co-created it. And if anything, it creates the conversation. We set the table for a true conversation on diversity and inclusion. It annoys some people and it's fine, like it's part of the process. Annoying people is part of the process, don't don't worry, whether in innovation or in diversity and inclusion. Third, it's always reframing prejudice. We are all prejudiced, me the first. To be honest with you, me the first. But sometimes in a conversation, where a perception is prejudiced. Reframe it. Take the time to reframe it. I had examples of people saying, for example, and I feel bad about saying it, but like um, someone is aggressive. And without diving too much into detail, because I have a bunch of examples, if you want, I can send them to you because I I like to take notes of that because it reminds me that I have to change as well. But I, I... that person brought a whole conversation on aggressivity of that person. And they were like, would you say the same thing if she wasn't black? She was a woman and black. And I, I literally said that in a meeting and everybody shut up. And they were like, oh shit, maybe not. And it blocked that conversation by putting the time to reframe uh, the prejudice itself without judging because we're all, we're all prejudiced. Fourth is highlight, discuss, and push past the imposter syndrome. We're all... Uh, noticing, and we witness it, and we had experiences of imposter syndrome either for ourselves or other people. Simple example, uh, applications. We had like a leadership team position and regular position, or like director and, and leadership team. More women apply for the lower position than men, and they are usually more qualified than men. And just asking the simple question, why didn't you apply for the director level? Why didn't you apply for the leadership Thing. Is it because you don't have time and commitment or, or, or something else? Usually they show that imposter syndrome. It happened to me on March 8th uh, last year for a woman in Tech event where a bunch of women were on stage and we talked about the imposter syndrome. And I'm not going to talk about the, the company, but uh, the leader there, who's a woman, said that, oh, I don't, I don't discriminate, I, I, I just hire for talent. And one of the things that we did and that I pushed my team to do is to say, yes, we hire for talent, but I want all of you to work your asses up, up until on the resume level, the resume that we get, we have balance. If on the resume level you have balance, then hire for talent. I don't care. But don't tell me that you're hiring for talent by being passive and not proactive, by not putting the effort to fight for the, 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 the imposter syndrome. And the fun part when I had this argument with the women who were on stage is that one of the speakers that were on the panel raised their, her hand, and she was said, you know what? If I didn't have my ally, husband, to push me past my fourth time talking about a certain position and not applying for it, I wouldn't be on the panel today because he pushed me to apply. That's how I got the position. And five, and I will stop there because that's a lot of uh, points. But the, I, I, will res- I, I will do a summary of those. But the fifth point for me is really important. If you want to be a good ally, you have to interrupt the interrupter. You have to learn to be an ally hand-in-hand with the woman. You have to uh, interrupt the interrupter, double down on good ideas. How many times a woman would be interrupted by a man uh, to continue the conversation? That sucks. You as an ally, you have to interrupt the interrupter. Double down on good ideas from minorities and women. How many times a good idea is just taken by a man and continue as if it was his or her own or not considered because they didn't have the support. So show your support, double down on the idea, say like, hey, Marie or Natasha or uh, Maria or whatever said this great idea and I think it's a great idea. Show your support That And finally, reframe ideas appropriation. Um, Bring them back to the real owner because it happens more often than than you would like. So anyway, in a nutshell, enforce proactive representation. Co-create a code of conduct. At least it will bring the conversation going. Always reframe prejudice because we are all uh, all having it and me the first. Um, And um, highlight, discuss and push past the uh, imposter syndrome. And finally, uh, learn to be a great ally, interrupt the interrupter, double down on great ideas and reframe appropriation ideas.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Elias. Right before we leave ourselves, last question from the... The Q&A section, what were the challenges of moving a huge event like Coopératon online? How did you manage to keep people engaged? Within uh-huh. a, a two minute answer, if you're able. Yeah, I will. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I think I'm slightly passionate, but
1: uh, anyway. Um, I, I would say it was a challenge indeed uh, to move it like as, as, as any other situation of moving a program and a competition online. But we were lucky we dev- we actually pivoted very fast we developed our own platform called global so you can go on cooperaton.global uh, to, to check it out and we kind of like embraced these aspects of being virtual meaning being asynchronous so not everything had to be on, on the same time zone happening at the same time so that was an asset and to increase to maintain engagement, we had people rotating online to be there, always answering, engaging with the people, et cetera. The good part is that like we, it allowed us to be Pan-Canadian, so we actually made this as an asset rather than a liability. And third, it was also about like creating those moments of time and space where like we would all get together during the workshops, over the weekend, et cetera, and we engage with everyone there. Having great mentors, we were lucky to have like, a variety of organizations coast to coast to coast who maintain that momentum between, uh, the participants, and that helps with the maintaining engagement. And some really interesting aspects appeared, and I will stop there so that uh, I stay uh, within the time. Uh, for example, we had a higher level of women participating for a simple reason, and I got some really beautiful emails uh, answering this, uh, 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 thanking us in a way, and I don't mean it in a regular but saying, you know, I have, a, I have kids, and it allowed me to work on my own time. I have kids and it's allowed me to work along their side. So some people who maybe wouldn't participate in co participated this year uh, to do that. And the beauty of all that is today, we're keeping the Coopératon global platform year long. So we're iterating on that. And probably there are some interesting news happening in 2021 for the entrepreneurs of Canada.
0: That's great. Thank you, Elias. I'll just take a look if there's any other questions. I think that was it. Thank you, Elias, for your time. I know we could have talked for another two, three hours, but thank you for accepting our invitation and sharing with us uh, your your experience. Well, thank you very, very much,
1: Cédric. Thanks for what you're doing both here with Startup Run and Montreal International. I think you're. Uh, we need more ambassadors like you and people who contribute. And thanks for Mazen as well for uh, supporting this. Um, it was a great chat. And uh, yeah, I think uh, we should take like uh, pieces by pieces. I mean, Anyway, so much to say and uh, so much action so uh, thank you very much again for the invite for so the